Tonight we're going to be reading Psalm 139, which can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 505, if you want to read along. That's Psalm 139 at page 505. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light, will, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. If you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are, your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast this is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak, to you with evil, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there are any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So something you may not know about me personally is that I have quite, a, quite an obsessive personality. When I want to know about something, I don't just want to know a little bit about it. I want to know absolutely everything there is to know about a topic. Now, this started when I was a kid um, with dinosaurs. And so I was that kid who, by the time I finished primary school, I had read every single book about dinosaurs in both the school and the public library. Then it became about birds, and I would go everywhere with like my bird handbook tucked under my arm, identifying, naming all the birds that I could see everywhere. And then it moved on to the topic of Pokemon, when my parents bought me Pokemon Yellow for the Game Boy Color. Now, I didn't just need to know the names of all of the 151 Pokemon. I needed to know their types, their moves, how to get them. Like, I just need to know everything about them. And then Pokemon Crystal came out, and there was 251 to learn about. And then Pokemon Emerald came out, and there was 386 Pokemon to memorize. Then Pokemon Platinum, and there was 493. Even today, I know way too much about Pokemon than a 30-year-old man should know about the 1,010 current Pokemon. To be honest with you, this is a little bit why I'm a pastor. No, not Pokemon. But because when I was in youth... I wanted to know everything I could about God. I hit that point where I needed to know and have all this knowledge about this God. I was probably that really annoying youth who harassed my leaders with questions. 
Questions like, what is God like? How can we describe him? What is true about him? What kind of God is God? Now, this term at youth, we've tried to answer some of these questions for our teenagers. We've gone through a list of God's attributes using the lens of Jen Wilkins' book, None Like God. In eight weeks of youth, we've covered 10 different attributes that God possesses in an effort to better understand this God that we serve. Now, we've just all heard read for us Psalm 139. I've actually chosen to preach from this psalm this evening because I think out of all the places in the Bible, this particular psalm well sums up all 10 attributes of God that we have looked at this term. And so this sermon for the youth hopefully is all revision. And for the adults in the room, hopefully someone taught you this at some point, but otherwise, we're about to learn a bunch of things about God. Now, this psalm is a favourite of many people. We read in verse 14 of the psalm, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, this line alone is true and beautiful, and it's probably a reason that people love this psalm. However, what I want to tell you is that Psalm 139 is not primarily about us. It is primarily about our God. And so, let's open our Bibles so that you can fact-check everything that I say and join me in praying that as we look at God's Word, we will understand Him better. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. I pray right now as we look at Psalm 139 that we may understand You, we may understand God, Your Father, better. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, Psalm 139 can be divided into four stanzas. If you've never done poetry before, that's just the fancy way of saying a paragraph. And so, let's start with the very first stanza. And the very first stanza in verse 1 tells us that the Lord God perceives and discerns. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see that God searches and knows. Now, this means that the Lord has knowledge. But you may be wondering, what type of knowledge does the Lord have? Well, in verse 3, we see that the Lord can discern my going out and my lying down. Now, that means that God knows both of those events, but also we're meant to assume and interpret that he knows every event between it as well. It's the same way that when I say I looked high and low for something, we are meant to assume that I searched everywhere between those two extremes. Now, in verse 4, we then read, Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Now, from just these two verses, I think we are drawn towards just one conclusion, and that is that God is omniscient. Now, as I was writing this sermon, I initially had an apology written in this part of the sermon, because tonight I'm going to throw around 10 really big theological words. However, then I decided that there's no need to apologise, and instead, you all should have outlines in your hands. Now, I made sure the youth were given them as they walked in. Everyone else, in your booklet as you walked in, there should be an outline for this sermon. Every time I use one of these really big theological words, the definition for that word will appear on the screen. What I want you to do is to write down that definition. That will, one, help you pay attention, and two, will make sure that you will not get lost as I throw around some seriously big words this evening. So starting with omniscient. For those of you who joined us on a Friday night at Youth Group, you will remember that we looked at the idea of God being omniscient in week six. 
Duncan ran our leaders through a quiz where we discovered that we as humans can know lots and lots of things. However, then he pointed out that we can't know everything, but God knows all things, and that's what it means for God to be omniscient. Another way of saying it is just that God is all-knowing. He knows everything completely, whether that be past, present, future, or possible. Now, I know a lot about Pokemon, but I only know past and present Pokemon. I don't know future or possible Pokemon. God knows everything that has happened, is happening, will happen, and could happen. His knowledge is also complete. While I've just stood up here and claimed to know about a lot about Pokemon, I have times where I forget things or I learn new things about that franchise. My knowledge is definitely not complete. Not so with God. God's knowledge is absolutely complete and it is of all things past, present, future and possible. What does that make you feel? Does that make you feel exposed? Does that make you sit in awe of our Lord? However it makes you feel, hold on to that feeling for now. We're going to deal with it at the end. Now, continuing in the first stanza, verse 5 tells us that God is behind us and before us. Now, to say that God is behind me is meant to be an encouragement. For any soldier on the front lines cannot draw encouragement from the army that's attacking them, Instead, they draw their encouragement from the army standing at their back. Now, to say that God is before me could refer to the location just in front of me, but this exact same Hebrew word also refers to before in time. You see, God is before David. God existed before David wrote this psalm. God existed before David's parents were alive. God existed before their parents were alive. In fact, God has always existed because God is eternal. Now, this word will not be up on the screen for long, so make sure you are writing it down. God is eternal. Now, hopefully you remember that we looked at this topic of God being eternal in week three. Chloe came up here and she made us order a whole bunch of events from human history into their correct chronological order. And then she helpfully pointed out that God existed well before any of these events and he will exist well past any of these events. Now, she said that God has no beginning, no end, and is not subject to the limitations of time. Now, she actually used a different psalm to prove this point. She looked at Psalm 90, where we read that, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Youth, if you thought your parents were old, God is older. If, like me, you're obsessed with dinosaurs and you've been taught that they lived a long, 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 long time ago, God was before the dinosaurs. In fact, God has always been there and he will always be there. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel small? Does it make you sit in awe of our Lord? However it makes you feel, hold on to that feeling for now. We're going to deal with it at the end. Now, the first stanza, so the first paragraph, ends with this line. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Knowledge of God is beyond human reckoning, 
And therefore, God is incomprehensible. Word number three. To say that God is incomprehensible means that God cannot be fully comprehended or understood. We can truly know him, we can know true things about him, but we cannot fully know him. Now, you may not explicitly remember us teaching that God is incomprehensible, and that's because I snuck it into week one of the term. I snuck it into week one under the radar because this is my least favourite attribute of God. I've just said that I love learning things. I love obtaining all the information. And yet, I cannot know everything there is to know about God. However, that doesn't make this untrue. In fact, all it does is reveal my arrogance. How can I, as a finite human being, possibly assume to know everything there is to know about God? A God that you could fully and completely understand would probably not be worthy of the title God. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel disappointed like it does for me? Or does it make you sit in awe of our Lord? However it makes you feel, hold on to it for now. We're going to deal with those feelings at the end. Now, I've been telling you to hold on to these feelings, but there is the chance that one of the feelings you are feeling right now is the desire to run away from this God. And if that is your feeling right now, you'd actually be in really good company. You see, that is exactly what David, the author of this psalm, declares in the second stanza, that he wants to run away from this God that he has been describing. David considers running to the highest heavens, and then he realizes that God is there. He considers running to the deepest depths, and then he realizes that God is there, which means that God is at both of those extremes and everywhere in between. In verse 9, we see that David writes, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, which is a really poetic way of saying the furthest east where the sun rises, David realizes that God is there. Then he says, if I was to settle on the far side of the sea, which is if he was to settle on the far end of the Mediterranean Sea, the furthest west that David could possibly imagine, God is there. So God is at both the far east, the far west, and everywhere in between. Hopefully, you know exactly where this is leading, and that is that God is omnipresent. Word number four. Now, President Riley helped us unpack this idea of God being omnipresent in week four. And they said that God is physically, spiritually, and fully present everywhere. God does not have size or spatial dimensions And because of this, he can be with his full being at every point in space. Now, I'm hoping this is ringing lots of bells for all the youth, because these are the very verses we used on that Friday night to prove that God is everywhere. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel comforted? Does it make you sit in awe of our Lord? However it makes you feel, hold on to those feelings. We're going to deal with them at the end. Now, since God is everywhere and David cannot escape from him, he realises that this all-present God is the one that he should be relying on for strength. And that's why in verse 10, we read that David asked for God's strong right hand to sustain him. We as humans can never be self-sufficient, but God, 
the one that we can rely on and ask to be our source of sustenance, he alone is self-sufficient. And there is word number five. Nick covered this topic in week two, although he simplified the language a little bit and said that God is independent. Nick pointed us towards Acts 17, where Paul says, God does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For God to be truly self-sufficient means that he is in no way dependent on his creation. He doesn't need us, even though we need him for things as simple as the food we eat, the air we breathe, the movement of electrons in the brain. We need God for everything, whereas God is fully self-sufficient. He doesn't need followers, and yet we choose to follow this self-sufficient God. We need his strong right hand to operate at even the most basic level, and how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel useless? Does it make you sit in awe of our Lord? Hold on to those feelings. We're going to deal with them at the end. The final verse of the second stanza concludes that David cannot hide from God. Darkness and light are the same to God. This means that God is both omniscient and omnipresent. And thankfully, I now do not need to explain what those two words mean because you have them written down in your notes already. And so we can head straight on to stanza number three. Having just said that God can see everything, even those things shrouded in the deepest darkness, David thinks about the darkest place that he can conceive of. And the darkest place that David can think about is in his mother's womb. There, the Lord cared for him. Even in that darkness, the Lord cared for him. There, David was created. In week two, when Nick taught about God being self-sufficient, he also taught on God being self-existent. Word number six. David was created. We were created, but God is uncreated. Now, if you remember youth, Nick handed out chocolates to you all as you answered his questions about what created or what caused certain things. But when he came to asking the question of what caused God, I don't think any of you actually earned a chocolate. And that's because God alone is the root cause of his own existence. He is self-existent. This is clear from the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, all the way through the last book of the Bible in Revelation 4-11. How does God's self-existence make you feel? Does it make you feel like a burden? Does it make you sit in awe of our Lord? However it makes you feel, hold on to those feelings for just a while longer. We're going to deal with them at the end. After commenting on how God was what caused himself, what caused David, David then praises God for how wonderful God's works are, which is like a little arrogant for my liking. But David is not actually puffing himself up. No, he is praising the God who is capable of doing those things. You see, God is not just omnipresent with David in the dark places. We know from Psalm 139 that God is active there in the dark places. Verses 13 and 14 say, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. God created David with awesome power in the most vulnerable stage of life, 
David has ever gone through, there the powerful Lord watched over him. We should tremble before the sheer might of a God who is that powerful. Because God can do that, but he can also do all things because God is omnipotent. Word number seven. Now, we should remember from the time that Rowan and Sam came up on stage that is pronounced omnipotent, not omnipotent. Because they did the game with all the bad smells. No, omnipotent, not omnipotent. And what we discovered is that God can do all that he wills. Nothing is too hard for God. Whether we look at the tiny, intimate scale of knitting together a human being in the womb, or whether we look at the grand scale of the creation of the universe, God is capable of it all. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel weak? Does it make you sit in awe of our Lord? However you feel, hold on to that feeling. We're going to deal with it at the end. Continuing in verse 16, we read, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so we discover that not only is this God all-powerful, he marvelously planned out all the details of David's life. Therefore, God is also sovereign. Word number eight. Patty actually led us through this topic just two days ago. To say that God is sovereign means that he alone has the right and the power to rule over all things. From our creation in verses 13 and 14, to all the days of my life that God has already planned in verse 16, to our resurrection at the end of time that is hinted at in verse 18, God rules it all. He has a plan. It is effectively written in stone because all that he plans will come to pass because he is in total control. He has total sovereignty over the whole universe. And how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel powerless? Does it make you sit in awe of our Lord? However it makes you feel, hold on to that feeling, we'll deal with it at the end. Now, given God's total sovereignty, David then begins to ponder on God's thoughts. And in verse 17 and 18, he says this, Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. God's very thoughts are innumerable, And that is because God is infinite. Word number nine. God has no limits. He is beyond measure. And it is important that we recognize the grand scale of our God, the God of the Bible. Ash taught on this topic in week one. She collected various responses from students at her high school. And basically the conclusion was that no one understands what it really means for something to be infinite. Because God is beyond limits. We are finite and we struggle to comprehend the infinite. I love the picture that David is creating here in verse 18. It is a picture of him trying to count the thoughts of God, but the number is so large that he falls asleep or potentially even dies trying to count the thoughts of God in verse 18. But even then, even when he has tried and failed to count all of God's thoughts because God is infinite, even then God is still with him. Now, it may be a slight tangent, but hidden within this attribute of God is something that someone with my personality type can really cling on to. When I reach eternity, as well as worshipping 
the glorious risen Lord Jesus, I hope to be able to learn a whole bunch of things about the topics that interest me. Maybe I will write a textbook on all of the birds in the new creation. But if eternity is eternal and forever, there should come a point where I learn absolutely everything there is to know about birds. I'll be that weird guy in heaven. But I will learn everything there is to know about birds. But for me, while I have this desire and drive to learn everything I can about a topic, it's actually the learning that I find rewarding. Once I actually hit that point of having all knowledge, I suspect I'm going to become a little bored. However, because God is infinite, I will be able to spend eternity learning new things about our good and great God. God is infinite, which means we can spend eternity learning things about him. Now, for me, I think this is a beautiful thing. It's something I'm excited by. I can spend eternity learning. There will not be a limit to the knowledge to be obtained. But how does this make you feel? Maybe this just makes you feel confused. Maybe this one makes you sit in awe of our God. However it makes you feel, hold on to that feeling for now. We're almost at the end. Now, we're at the end of stanza three, and this is where we hit a tiny snag. Psalm 139 has perfectly led us through nine of the ten attributes that we covered at youth this term, but the tenth one is not in there. The tenth one is that God is immutable. Word number ten. Now, Annie actually led us through this attribute in week four, where instead we simplified the language a fair bit, and instead we said that God is unchanging or God is consistent. Now, Annie led us through a whole bunch of different photos of leaders, old, some of them pretty bad photos of leaders, to show that we as human beings change. But then we taught that God does not change because God is unchanging in regards to his character, his nature, his purposes, and his promises. Now, while this, and I agree, does not come through in Psalm 139, it does come through in Hebrews 13.8, Malachi 3.6, James 1.17, and Matthew 7.24. We worship and serve today the same God that David worshipped and served when he wrote this psalm. And those who come after us will continue to worship the same God. This also means that everything that is true of the God of this psalm is true of the God that we worship today because God is unchanging. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel really inconsistent yourself? Does it make you sit in awe of our Lord? However it makes you feel, now is the time to start releasing those feelings. How do you feel after being told that God is omniscient, eternal, incomprehensible, omnipresent, self-sufficient, self-existent, omnipotent, sovereign, infinite and immutable? This is a psalm. This is meant to evoke feelings within you. What feelings are going through you right now? I'm hoping that some of you are feeling a sense of surprise. Maybe some of this is new to you. Maybe some of you are really concerned because this is new to you. I'm hoping that some of you are feeling really comforted by the God that we serve here at Nawi. But I'm also hoping that most of you are sitting in awe of our Lord. I've been dropping that line throughout the sermon because that is David's clear response to the God that he has been writing about. It is awe. Now, Google defines awe as a feeling of deep respect mixed with wonder and fear. 
Psalm 139 is not a psalm about me, wonderfully and fearfully made. It is about my maker, who is to be wondered and feared. This psalm is intended to inspire awe, deep respect, deep wonder, and also deep fear. And as we stand in fear and wonder of our incredible God, what should our response be? How should we act after this? Well, for David, his awe drove him towards godly living. Now, the beginning of stanza four feels pretty brutal, and that's because David is driven by God's attributes to hate sin and with every fibre of his being to see sin eradicated. But before we get caught up in the brutality of the beginning of stanza four, whose sin concerns David the most? The answer is in verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Awe of God has led David to self-reflection, humility, confession, and submission. And the desire to see sin eradicated was not just David's desire. It was also Jesus' desire. Jesus, who came to earth a thousand years after the writing of this psalm, died so that he could see sin eradicated. Tonight, we've had three of our sisters stand up in front of us all and tell us why they believe in the gospel of Jesus. They've also expressed a desire to see sin eradicated in their own lives. As they have understood their God more, that has driven them to awe and that has driven them towards godly living. And that is what should happen. A proper understanding of God will lead us to be in total awe of this God. And that awe should drive us towards godly living. Now tonight, you've been writing down a bunch of definitions about our God. I want you to write down one more thing. I want you to write down one area of your life that is not currently in submission to our God. I'm sure you can think of one. I know that I can for myself. Let the awe of God tonight drive you towards godly living. I'll remind you, the God we serve is omniscient. He is eternal. He is incomprehensible. He is omnipresent. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. He is omnipotent. He is sovereign. He is infinite. And he is immutable. We should, in humility, confess our sins to God and one another and submit to his way of living so please now join me in prayer as we wrap up Psalm 139. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the sheer scale, the sheer power of who you are. We thank you for all of these attributes that are true of you. Thank you for these things that we have discovered of you in Psalm 139. And I pray that like David, we will be driven to hate sin. And because we hate sin, we will take a look at ourselves and strive towards godly living. And I pray that that will be a reality in the lives of everyone in this building tonight. Amen.